Well, welcome to today's Generation Podcast, and my guest today is Sam Albury. Um, Sam is an Englishman, but we wouldn't hold that against him. He's just told me that he feels that his roots are in Scotland, so that's great. It's a good start. He studied theology at Oxford, he worked for St Ebbs, and, uh, and then again in Maidenhead, a church called St Mary's. And he's presently a global speaker for Ravi Zacharias International. Sam, welcome. Thank you. And by the way, I'm a quarter Scottish, so there's at least 25% of me that I hope will be acceptable. Excellent. Do, do you like Scotland? Oh, I love... I'm, I'm not just saying this, I promise, but um, if I... Yeah, I, I, I do. The, the further north and west I go in Scotland, the happier my soul is. So um, the, the Hebrides, if I... If I could, if I was forced to spend eternity in one place, it would be the it would be the Hebrides. Okay, well, we've got some nice churches that are looking for ministers, so uh, we might do some business in that later. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So before you head off to your Hebridean uh, ideal escape, um, apologetics, Sam. Can you just explain to our listeners what apologetics is? Yes, it's a it's a confusing word. Um, it, it's um, it sounds like we're just apologising for things, and, yeah. and obviously there are times as Christians when we need to do that as well. But apologetics really is trying to defend the reasonableness of the Christian faith. We mm-hmm. see the Apostle Paul doing this in Acts seventeen when, when we're told in our translations that he was reasoning uh, with the people there in in, in Athens. The the Greek word is based on apologia it's yep. to give a defense of something so it's it's part of our calling as christians as we seek to give a reason for the hope that we have that we have to respond to questions and objections that people around us have and apologetics if you like is is the sort of the part of the christian life and and thinking that tries to anticipate and respond to the big objections people have to christianity Okay, some folk would say that you cannot reason folk into the faith, you know, that, you know, mere argument itself will never make anybody a Christian. What What's your response to that? Uh, yes, I mean, there's no, I mean, I, I, I take that. Um, I think I, I also want to say God, God uses his word and yeah. his word is reasonable and we want people to see the reasonableness of God's word. That doesn't mean... We argue people into the kingdom, but I think it, it does mean we seek to give as faithful a presentation of, of God's gospel as we possibly can. And that will mean responding to some of the objections to it. Yeah. So it's not the question of, well, if you can if you can just, you know, you can't just maneuver people into the kingdom of God. It's a it's the spirit who gives the new birth. Um, it's it's God's work, not ours, but he calls us to proclaim his word that he uses. And part of that proclamation is is defending it, um, explaining it, trying to reason with people about it, trying to show how it's compelling and how it's more beautiful and more compelling than anything else that's out there by a long way. Yeah. I mean, when I go back and it's not quite ancient history, but, you know, as I was growing up, two of the big figures in evangelicalism were, you know, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and Francis Schaeffer. Yeah, I mean, mm. to, to so many of our listeners, you know, they, they're just historical names. 
but Lloyd Jones's big thing was, you know, the power of preaching, the power of spirit, uh, spirit anointing. Schaefer was the great apologist, taking kind of you know current issues of of the day. Both of them were, were prophetic in their own way. Do you see a contradiction between that kind of uh, anointing versus reason? Not at all. Not at all. Um, no, and, and both of those men are are great examples, as, as you've just said. Um, Lloyd-Jones was, and by the way, when I talk about apologetics, I'm not necessarily justifying every single thing that sure. is done in the name of apologetics. I think there's there's a type of apologetics out there that I'm not comfortable with that seems to be about simply out-arguing other people and always being right. And I'm not comfortable at all with that. But I think, for me, apologetics is a subset of proclaiming the gospel. Um, it's the part of proclaiming the gospel that deals with these objections and arguments and pushback and all the rest of it. Um, so it's part of preaching. And interestingly, my I, I work with an apologetics ministry, but my, my dirty secret is I've had no training in apologetics. <laughs> my background has been as a pastor. And as a pastor, preaching the word week on week to a, a congregation of, of God's people, you you have to deal with people's doubts. You have to deal with people's questions. You're dealing with um, visitors who are coming into the church who are not Christians and, and what they're thinking. So actually, I learned to do apologetics by preaching. I, um, I, I, I love that emphasis, you know, that, you know, uh, preaching does have that apologetic uh, emphasis. You know, Tim Keller talks often about what he calls apologetic sidebars. You know, when, when you see yes. something in the passage that will, you know, someone's eyebrows will raise you, you deal with that. Exactly. And it's, it's part of trying to understand the person you are speaking to, um, particularly in our context, understanding in many cases, the, the non-Christian that you're speaking to and, and how their mind works and what what their assumptions are. And almost always there are misconceptions about the Christian faith that need to be corrected and objections that, that need to be cleared away in order for people to, to properly hear what God's word is saying. To, to what extent do we have to be respectful to our listener? I'll, I'll give you one example you can read in Genesis. Um, the story of God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, you know, Isaac. I want you to take him up the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. You know, in, in your mind is a picture of uh, a dad and his wee boy going up this hill with a big, you know, dagger. You know, can you understand how some folk would say what sort of a god is that oh exactly yes and and this is why we need to 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 as we're as we're seeking to explain and preach god's word we we really need to understand what is going on in the hearts and minds of of those listening as mm -hmm. they hear these passages being even just as they hear them being read and you know, if there's a completely mistaken understanding of what God is like, we we need to know that, and we need to deal with that. And that's a that passage is a great example. It's used. Richard Dawkins has a field day with it. Yeah. Many of the atheists do because they see it as being, haha, this is this horrible Old Testament God of wrath who, you know, this is the Nuremberg trial equivalent of you know, if God tells you to kill your own son, are you going to do it? Kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And actually, it misunderstands the passage entirely. What's the passage um, saying? Tell, tell us, what, what do you think it's saying? Well, it's, it's, 
firstly, I, Isaac is not a is not a toddler. Isaac uh-huh. is is in the Hebrew young man, and that's that's often used of someone who would be. 20, 25 years old, we, we get the sense from the fact that he's carrying the wood up the hill that he's no, yeah. he's no little child. Um, so he's not the sort of helpless toddler that we often imagine him to be or little boy that we imagine him to be. There are indications in, in what Abraham says that he, he knows that somehow God is going to, to come through on this. Um, he says that we will come back to you, to those who are the servants that they are with when they head up off up the hill um it's it's a wonderful picture of of what we have in christ we have um the father giving his son as a sacrifice and the fact that we we have in the gospel the son the eternal son jesus christ walking up the hill to the mount of crucifixion carrying the wood on his back it's a it's a wonderful picture of of the God who is the opposite of the kind of caricature that, that Dawkins would, would would say that we believe in. So, um, yeah, so you could almost say it's a joint venture. You know, Isaac and Abraham were both involved in this faith enterprise. Exactly. The son yeah. is not is not the sort of un, unwilling third a hapless party. victim. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So um, that's apologetics. It's it's part of explaining the, it's explaining the scripture, but it's explaining it particularly being mindful of misunderstandings, objections, questions, confusions, all those sorts of things that are going to be there in the mind of, of unbelievers, and increasingly so as our culture in the West becomes more and more post-Christian. We we could assume 50 years ago a, a basic biblical literacy that is not the case today, and so I, those misunderstandings are going to be more pronounced and more common now and bigger, I would imagine, than they would have been for some of our spiritual fathers and grandfathers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, I'm glad you raised the issue of, of preaching. Again, I think some of our listeners would be interested in just some comment on that. There's been a, a lot of debate recently about, you know, the essence of preaching. What is the difference between, or is there a difference between preaching and teaching? Is preaching simply explaining the text? Um, what's the difference then between preaching and a mere lecture uh, is is there passion in preaching uh, you know have you any views in preaching well, i'm sure you have you've used everything <laughs> but can you just say what do you think that the elements of of good preaching well i think it's it's not less than teaching but it's certainly much more than it because there is an element of of explaining and helping people to understand things but it must be more than that because it's we're seeking to do more than merely transferring data from from the preacher's head into the heads of those who are listening. That is teaching. Um, what we're seeking to do in preaching, what I'm seeking to do is to discern the burden of a particular passage and to lay that burden on the hearts and minds of those who are listening mm-hmm. in a way that exalts Jesus Christ to them. I, I'm, I love Jonathan Edwards on this. I, mm-hmm. I want people's affections to be raised for Jesus Christ through understanding this particular text. So there is teaching involved, but the teaching is is not the end in itself. It's a means to the greater end of Christ becoming present and beautiful through the understanding of his word. Um, I was really struck just I was, as you do, <laughs> I was minding my own business, reading through Ephesians 
and suddenly got hit in Ephesians 2 when Paul says to the Gentile readers, um, Christ came and preached to you who were far off. And I suddenly thought, when did that happen? What is what is Paul referring to then? Did did Jesus at some point in the Gospels kind of get an easy jet flight to, mm-hmm. to Turkey or Greece or something that we didn't notice? And that the point Paul is making is that in his preaching, Christ came and preached peace mm-hmm. to those who were far away. And that's what I'm longing for in preaching, is that Christ himself would be preaching through my fallible, weak human words as I seek to expand the passage that actually it's not just a transfer of information. Actually, Christ is is present in his word and and God himself is preaching. Yeah. Do you think it's a place for oratory in preaching? I mean, I don't know if you heard the Attorney General last week in, in, in the Commons. He gave a very passionate speak about Brexit. Um, you'll be glad to know I'm not going to ask you about Brexit. But, you know, the Attorney General uh, really was passionate. It was old school oratory. Some folk kind of like that. Some folk don't. If you transfer that into the medium of preaching, is there a place for oratory and passion? Oh, certainly. Um, but again, they they can be they they're wonderful tools, but we mustn't trust in them and think, well, as long as I've got oratory and passion, this thing will kick. Sure, and and they can be extraordinarily fake at times, or well, exactly. they, they can appear to be fake, can't they? Yeah. Yeah, you you can sometimes tell listening to a preacher that. We've just got to the bit where he's written in his notes, speak louder at this point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it doesn't feel genuine. Mm-hmm. And I think it's in Tim Keller's book on preaching that the, the way to preach to the heart is to preach from the heart. So there yeah. has to be passion. But it's got to be passion that is is genuinely coming out of our own encounter with God's word. And rather than I've got to try to look like this really matters. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and, and passion isn't and always oratory, shouting. Yeah, and I think oratory is, and, and obviously if your natural personality type is is that you're very placid, it's going to seem strange if all of a sudden you're screaming your head off when you're in the pulpit. But conversely, if you're a very passionate person ordinarily, it's going to be equally strange if you are monotonous in the pulpit. So we, we want our own natural personality to be involved in preaching i think that's part of how god has designed it to work and i think in terms of oratory i think there's there's a place for thinking through whether there there can be you know if if there's a way of expressing something beautifully we want to express it beautifully yeah um, there's a rhythm and cadence that will help humanly to hammer a point home then we want to do that and so you know where, where we put the accent on a sentence how we structure it how we how a, a paragraph flows, all of these things are useful tools in in preaching, but we, we daren't trust in those things as being, well, as long as I've got those things in place, I'm okay. Yeah, because, you know, if we're eating food, you could put all the ingredients in a liquidizer and just liquidize it. Uh, it would do the same job, but that's a very different experience to having it 
you know, beautifully presented on the plate and a really nice white tablecloth with silver service. Um, exactly. No, it's the same thing, but, you know, we're, we're not Gnostics. We, we do experience things of, of beauty, you know. We do, but uh, you can have the, the danger is that if, you, if you're someone who naturally has the gift of the gab, I've, I've heard sermons, <laughs> I think one or two preachers I know who, every time I hear them, they are so compelling and so gripping but on monday morning i can't remember what on earth they were talking about yeah and then, i mean there's one preacher i i know and he's a phenomenal preacher um but he could say the moon was made of cheese and folk would would believe it and, yes. you know sometimes <laughs> theologically i think he is saying the moon is made of cheese but so I mean, these, these things all have to be in the in the service of the word yeah, yeah. Let, let me just move on to one or two other issues which I think our listeners will be interested. Um, you're, you're a Church of England vicar. In the 2017 Synod, you made a pretty famous uh, speech which has gone viral. I just want to talk a little bit about controversy and saying stuff that's maybe not popular. Can you just give us some comments maybe about how Christians should approach controversy. I'm thinking especially about controversy within a church. What struck me uh, was your reasonableness, your gentleness, your respect. Um, have you thought much about the whole issue of how do you disagree in a church context? Yes, um, sadly, I've had to. Um, in, the, in the Church of England, you can't not think about that. Um, yeah. There is so much disagreement and controversy sadly um <clears throat> i think um i'm i'm glad if if i was gentle and, and reasonable i i hope to be i i always want to be i think it's just because so, so there's a there's a few things here one is is this an issue that is worth contending over not every disagreement needs to be weighed into and addressed and all the rest of it can, can you give the listeners the context uh, um, for us? Yeah, so the context here was the definition of marriage and whether we, we in the Church of England should change the definition of marriage to allow for same-sex couples to be married in the church. So that, to me, is a gospel issue. Um, I think the New Testament is is crystal clear on that, that you end up changing the gospel if you if you begin to redefine marriage and sexuality in that way. So to me, you know, that, that was it was a no-brainer that this is an issue – you have to weigh in on and contend on as as a pastor, um, as a minister. So there was no doubt in my mind whether to address this controversy. The question then becomes how to address it. Uh, there'll be other controversies where I sort of think, actually, I really don't need to weigh in on that. That's a tertiary issue. Um, I just don't think it's going to be worth the, the time and energy to to kind of weigh on it. So not every controversy necessarily needs to be addressed we've got to do our theological triage and, mm -hmm. and discern which sure. which are the issues that we must fight on and which are ones that we we don't really need to um when it comes to how i'm i'm always trying to win people um and so i don't just want to express my anger though there there is a place for feeling angry at some of what is going on i'm actually thinking I think, by God's grace, there might be some people in this room who can still be won to an orthodox position. And so I'm, that's what I'm always trying to do, is, is to think that I, I don't just want to shout at those 
who I believe are, are wrong and tell them that they're wrong. Actually, I want to win them. Um, if there's any way I, I can woo them to, to the to the truth of God's word, then I, I want to do that. And I know within the, the Church of England General Synod, which was the context for that, yeah. uh, for that debate and for that speech, there would still be a significant number of people who would be on the fence on that issue who are, are waiting to see which way they land on it. And there are others who would have a wrong position but might still be winnable on it. And therefore, I, I, I'm always thinking gentleness and respect were taught in in one Peter, um, and thinking, I wonder if there's, I wonder if there's someone who might yet still come to this position. Um, so that's that's the way I, I want to go into these controversies is not simply to blow off steam, but actually, I don't, I don't just want to, I don't just want to state the truth. I want to draw people to the truth. I sure. want to win people to the truth. Yeah, I mean, at the synod, there's approximately 450 people there. Um, I think you said at one point that you felt bullied. So did you feel pressure at that time? I was, yeah, it was a dreadful, it was a dreadful synod. Um, <laughs> I, within, the synod tends to last three or four days. Um, within... An hour of it beginning on the first day, I was in tears. It was just wow. awful. Um, the vitriol against those of us who were theologically conservative and, and we would say biblical and faithful on these issues of, of sexual ethics, the vitriol was 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 horrendous. Uh, people were mocking the use of, of people like me describing ourselves as same-sex attracted rather than the language of being gay and we're, we're making hugely disparaging comments about that publicly one speaker even talked talked about how she was proud she never met anyone who described themselves as same-sex attracted and it was just it was interestingly it was exactly how the the gay community were treated by mainstream culture in the mm -hmm. 60s and 70s mm -hmm. is how the the theologically liberal pro-gay people are now treating those of us who are theologically conservative, and particularly those of us who who wrestle with issues of, of same-sex attraction ourselves. Yeah, you've been um, you, you've been very open about your same-sex attraction uh, experience. What was that difficult to begin to talk about that in a, a public arena? Oh, it, it was. It was something I I, I never ever wanted to do, um, and I remember I remember saying. I wanted friends to know because I wanted friends to, to pray for me and encourage me and hold me accountable and just walk with me, help me to be faithful through it. So I knew I needed people around me to know. Um, but I remember saying once, once I talked, talk, sort of opened up to my friends, I remember thinking, right, that's it. I'm, I'm never going to, I don't ever want to talk about this publicly. And I even remember saying to someone, I don't ever want to be that guy who talks about his, his sexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not something I, I'd always sort of wanted to do. And even now, there are so many other things I would rather talk about than, than my own yes. temptations and, and struggles and sins. But I just felt a growing burden that actually, as this issue was beginning to really swamp us culturally, I just felt a burden that there needed to be even just two or three of us who could speak to this issue from within it. Yeah. Um, that that would that would be of service to the church to have some voices from within some of these experiences 
testifying to the goodness of God's word. So I felt a burden to speak about the goodness of God's word. I don't I don't ever get out of bed thinking, hooray, I get to talk about homosexuality today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do get out of bed thinking, hooray, I get to talk about the goodness of Jesus today. And if and and sexuality is a wonderful context to talk about the goodness of Jesus. That there's no other reason, as far as I'm concerned, to talk about it. So it was it was never the plan and um if I woke up tomorrow and there was no need ever to teach on on <laughs> on this issue again, I'd I'd be I'd be very happy. Um, by by vocation and, and calling, I'm a I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, and what I do on sexuality for me is is merely an expression of trying to be a pastor. It's trying to teach the scriptures. It's trying to draw people to Christ and. This is a great context for doing that. Now, if I may ask, being same-sex attracted and knowing that Scripture, you know, forbids an expression of that, um, presumably that's that's just the way you are. That's the way you're wired. Do you ever get angry with God for your situation? Um, in, very infrequently. <laughs> um, my, I remember when I turned twenty. And I'd been at that point a Christian for just two years. I remember thinking, by the time I turn 30, I'd like to be married with kids. And I remember thinking, that's a godly thing to aspire to. I wanted to be a Christian husband and a Christian father. Um, and I thought, that's a, that's a godly ambition. I'm sure the Lord will, will honor that. And then as I got to my mid and late 20s, I began to realize that wasn't looking realistic. I remember at that stage particularly feeling unhappy with the Lord and with the way he had, um, you know, with the way things seem to be going. And I don't often, certainly don't often feel angry towards God. I, I find myself, I have to catch myself occasionally feeling sorry for myself, which I think is an expression of, of being unhappy with God. Okay. Um, when I, when I kind of peel back the layers and think, okay, I'm feeling sorry for myself this week because I would still like to be married. Um, and I then realized actually feeling my, sorry for myself is a way of saying, God, you've not been very good to me, have you? Mm-hmm. And when I realize that's what it's an expression of, I then need to come back to myself and say, no, hang on a sec. That's not true. Uh, you don't have the right to feel sorry for yourself. You can, you can, you know, there are various things to, to express sorrow over there, are, there there's a, a time and a place to lament certain things but um i must keep reminding myself of, of god's goodness okay i mean this is a really big question but we talk about love um in the realm of relationships what is love um that is that is the question <laughs> In our culture at the moment. And interestingly, this this fascinates me and, and appalls me at the same time. Our, our culture is building this entire edifice on the assumption of, you know, being driven by love and love is love and love wins and all these things. If you stop and say to someone, can you tell me what love is? More often than not, they can't. Mm-hmm. And even people who are, you know, the, the big movers and shakers in in culture or in progressive christianity you stop and ask them to define love and it's amazing how quickly they get muddled Mm -hmm. 
And so the thing I keep coming back to is, um, you know, God is love. And what that doesn't mean is that everything I call love, God must bless and be in favor of. Mm -hmm. Instead, God is love means I need God to show me in any and every situation what it will look like to be loving here. And so that means if I'm if I'm seeking to follow God's words, I'm never going never going to end up loving people less than if I disobeyed God's word. So in other words, if if two people of the same sex are in a romantic relationship, they're actually loving each other less than if they were loving if they were behaving towards each other in the way that God is saying that they should. So if two people love each other but for various reasons they are unable to fully express that or, or, or to, to marry, how do you think they would feel about God? Ought they to feel resentment? No, not at all. Um, it, that's not to say that it's not difficult. Sure? And, and the words of Jesus can be hard. The words of Scripture can be hard. Um, but if they are, it's only because they are. there's work that needs to be done on us. Yeah. And so, you know, we need God to show us how to order our loves. I do not, you know, if, if, if any male friend of mine, I am to love as a brother. And to want to love them in a romantic way is actually it's it's a mis, a misunderstanding and a disordering of love. Um, if I'm loving them in the way God tells me to, I'll be loving them far, far better than if I love them in the way that I feel I might want to, if that makes sense. Sure. And although that, you know, there are always going to be times when when following God's word contradicts some very, very deep feelings within us. Mm-hmm. Deep longings, deep ambitions, deep desires, not just in this in the in the realm of of romantic love, but but even more generally in life. And those are the moments we have to trust God knows better than we do. And He's not giving us these words because he just gets a kick out of giving us a hard time, but because he has good to do in us and through us through those difficult words. And I keep coming back to Jesus' call to discipleship to be deny yourself and take up your cross. Yeah, it's the cost of um, discipleship, isn't it? And and these things absolutely. are hard. They are hard. They are. And Jesus' language there is not moderate. Um, mm. It. It tells me that there are going to be times when discipleship feels like Jesus is killing me. And yet those are the very moments when actually he's refining me, he's giving me life, he's showing his goodness to me. So we can be tempted to to feel resentment, of, of, of course, and sometimes that can bubble up within us. But we need to check ourselves and, and to say, well, actually... God is God knows so much more than I do about the best way for me to live. Yeah. He's more committed to my goodness than I am. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he knows way more about this stuff than I do. Yeah. And that's why he's he's got the steering wheel and not me. He's he's wise. He's been around for a long time and you know as I <laughs> often as I often say to folk there are no vacancies in the Trinity and uh, we <laughs> we certainly don't have the qualifications to to apply. <coughs> no. I think, I think both in terms of apologetics and in terms of pastoral care and in terms of discipleship and everything else, what what I keep coming back to is taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not enough for people to know that God is true. They need to know that God is good. And 
I need to know that God is good. I won't trust him if I don't think he's good. And that was the first temptation back in Genesis 3 was, actually, God's not really good. So that that's the thing I need to keep telling myself day by day. Um. I mean, connected, but moving on, uh, you're a bit of a West Wing fan, which kind of, <laughs> uh, as I am, and that maybe dates us. What's, who's your favourite West Wing character? Who would you like to be? Gosh, and it's uh, just a, last week, it was the 20th anniversary that that show yeah, was first yeah. aired. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to age us both. Um, I, I mean, I've always liked CJ. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and I feel a bit more like CJ than most of the other characters. I feel like I, I identify most with CJ and Sam simply because in in my world, I'm not the president, Yeah. but I represent the president and I have to craft words that are meant to represent the president. And so I feel like speech writing and, and public speaking for the Lord are a little bit like those, those, those two roles in the West Wing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we we stand before people who have questions often antagonistic questions about about the god that we are serving and and we serve at his pleasure and so yeah those those two roles to me i feel a lot of that you know that that clip of of sam going through endless drafts of a speech thumping the desk and throwing another one into the yeah waste paper bin we've 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 all been there with Sermon Preparation. It, 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 yeah, it's it's a great series. I think I'm probably more of a Toby. You know, I like this <laughs> kind of grumpy old man with the weight of the world <laughs> on his shoulders. And you almost wish you could you could elect Bartlett. Um, well, one, one interesting thing, um, there's a really well-known West Wing episode that's called The Midterms. And you'll be familiar with it. There's mm. uh, a religious lady comes in. And she's really, you know, anti-gay. And uh, Bartlett quotes Leviticus 18, you know, not eating shellfish, you've not to use mixed seeds or fabric. You you know the episode well. And, mm. you know, Bartlett is the really moderate uh, liberal mind and the other ladies, the, the, the bigot. How, how how would you respond in that situation if someone pulled out the Leviticus eighteen line? Yes, it's it's often brought brought up, and it's it's a it's an it's an argument people love using. Yeah, against Christian views on sexual ethics, simply because from their point of view, they're using our own scriptures against us. So it feels to them like a mic drop moment, kind of slam dunk. Ha ha, we got you here, haven't we? But it, it's it's primary mistake is it's not treating the Old Testament as Jesus treats the Old Testament. It's, mm-hmm. They are treating the Old Testament as if it's simply a flat plane of various commands, and their accusation is that we're just picking and choosing which commands to take seriously and to honour. Sure. Jesus mm-hmm. treats different parts of Old Testament law in different ways. And and therefore we need to as well. Uh, there, there's a shape, there are contours to the Old Testament law that we need to understand if we're to if we're to, to honour the 
scriptures rightly. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if people are all that interested, to be honest. You know, we talk about hermeneutics and things are complex. Um, but, you know, in, in life, there is complexity. But folk are yeah. looking for sound bites all the time. You know, I, I don't think folk are all that interested if you start talking about interpretation, new covenant, old covenant. Um, you know, No, which is why I keep wanting to bring it back to Jesus and say, yeah. well, I want to do with Leviticus what Jesus does with Leviticus. Yeah, 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 and then hopefully that that gets us talking about Jesus more than Leviticus. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's it's one of those things where there are certain questions and objections people have that they they so love they're really not interested in whether there's a response to them. Sure, they just like how they sound articulating that particular objection or argument. Yeah, well, we're on our, our final lap. Um, just one or two things I want to chat about before we finish in the last kind of five minutes. You've written a number of books as God Anti-Gay, Seven Myths About Singleness, Why Bother with the Church, Connected About the Trinity. Are you working on anything just now or have you just published recently? I I am working on something at the moment. I just so um, The Seven Myths About Singleness book came out earlier this year and I've just been finishing up um, a book, an apologetics book, and it's meant to be evangelistic. I'm trying to do the impossible, which is to write an evangelistic book about Christian sexual ethics. Mm-hmm. So that's called Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? Mm-hmm. Um, which is one of the questions I, I hear the most, particularly from under 25s. Um, so I've tried to write a short book that I hope will be um, for a non Christian, readable, compelling, will point them to Christ. Um, and that, that comes out, I think, at the beginning of March next yeah. year. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking that. about, I mean, one of your titles is Why Bother with Church? Um, last week, I, I was in Glasgow. I was visiting a church. It's a church in a multi-ethnic situation. And, you know, if you go into a South Asian community or a Roma community, you know, there's really high levels of, of community interaction and um, i'm thinking maybe even of folk from a south asian context uh, muslim uh and you know big community and someone said and you're asking them to sometimes leave that to go to meetings is church more than just a bunch of meetings it should be yeah um just as it should be more than merely a preaching station. Um, what what the word is is meant to do in us and among us as as God's people is to knit us together as we've been united to Christ by the Spirit. So we are united to one another in our union with Christ. We we're united to Him corporately as well as individually, and so that should create a. A, a spiritual family in the language of, of 1 Timothy. We, we are now the household of God. Um, it should create a new humanity in Ephesians kind of language. And so church should be far more than merely I'm going to my weekly meeting of Christians Anonymous or, or something like that. It, it, it should be these are my people. I'm, I'm bound to this group of people in a way that I'm not bound even to my own blood family. Um, and therefore, for those for whom allegiance to Jesus will mean that they are no longer welcome back into their own communities, the church has really got to show that actually 
there's a depth of community, a depth of belonging, a depth of mutual responsibility that that comes in the church that you just don't see anywhere yeah. else again and that that takes commitment doesn't it there's a cost to that opening exactly. your home opening your life cooking meals giving time yeah it's it's gloriously inconvenient yeah. um, and it's meant to be um it's it's not meant to be about us and what we feel like and what we think we're getting out of it it's got to be i'm going to church because I need these people and these people need me. Um, we're all in this thing together, which means Sunday should be the, is always the locus of, of the gathering, you know, the gathering of God's people is the locus of, of church life. But I hope it's not the only expression of that, that sense of family that through the week we are encouraging each other, interacting with each other, as you say, opening our homes to one another um, and that there are so many tangible expressions of being part of the same spiritual entity. So I don't think we're very good at that. I, I live in Southern England. Uh -huh. we, we, everyone likes their privacy and their separateness and their to, to keep closing their front doors. And we, yeah. we get out of that. But you, even as a single guy, you you certainly enjoy community. You know, I've heard that your holiday you know, experience in the summer is often quite good. You go away with a whole bunch of people, married, singles, and you all enjoy one another's company. Yeah, oh, I love that. It's one of yeah. my favourite weeks of the year. Um, there's a gang of us every year who who go away, and it, it's become a win-win. It's a couple of families, three or four singles, depending on the year and who's around, and all of us love it. Uh, the kids love it because they've got more people to kind of hang out with and play with. The parents love it because their kids have got more people to hang out and play with. Uh, we singles love it because we've got families to enjoy being part of. Uh, you know, I was, I was digging on a beach with some of the kids this year, and it's an excuse to do that. Um, so, yeah, it's it's great fun. There, there are wonderful ways of, of doing life as a blended community of God's people, of, of being voluntary kin to one another. And I think that's the, the New Testament vision for church. It doesn't obliterate our our responsibilities to our, our biological families or our nuclear families, but it, it does transcend those things and extend them. Great. Well, in a previous life, I used to work for the Isle of Skye tourist organisation. So uh, you've got you've got to make you've got to make Skye one of your destinations. Sam, it's been great. Sorry. It's I've been there three times. It's my favourite place on the planet. I've oh, you, you're, you're talking. It's, it out, it out Middle Earths New Zealand as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> you, you've certainly won uh, the gold medal there. Sam, thank you so much. <laughs> we, we, we've covered many subjects here. Uh, I really appreciate that. And I hope our listeners have, you know, been stimulated by what Sam's spoken about, you know, deliberately, intentionally. We've covered lots and lots of, of issues. <clears throat> um we want to thank our listeners. Uh, I want to encourage you just to share the podcast, share it with others. We love getting feedback. Um, a bit of the feedback that we've um, got is that we haven't interviewed any women recently. So, in fact, not at all. Uh, we've taken that on board. I can assure you we're not just a bunch of lads having a, a, a great time. So we're going to be interviewing some great women uh, in the next few Weeks. We'd love to hear comments. We've got Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, 
please speak to us uh, about today's podcast, about anything that we can do, any way that, that we can serve you. Sam's got lots of books there. Um, they are all worth reading. Sam, once again, thank you for being here. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I'm, I thank God for the Free Church of Scotland. It's blessed me enormously. So God bless you all. Thank you. Thank you.